CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. When Troy comes on the show, I divide it into two segments. I got local, got national. They're really tied together because national affects local, uh, and uh, as we were talking about with Maya. And uh, so we're going to start with the local. We're going to go through uh, all the local news of the day, get his thoughts and stuff, starting with that teacher strike, which settled. Last time Troy was on the show, uh, we were talking about what the teachers, were the teachers asking for enough. Troy had a very interesting perspective on that one I hadn't seen in the mainstream media. That's for sure. And then we'll have head over into national uh, news and talk about uh, the efforts to uh, unseat Donald Trump and have a more just uh, America. But uh, before we do that, D, you got an update for me? Absolutely. Here two updates. Uh, one shout out to Ben Jarofsky show devotee, Frank. Oh, what's going on, Frank? What's going on, Frank? Ah, well, you were wrong about something. Okay, it's not the first time. All right. He says here, uh, Ben, actually, uh, Chris Kennedy is from Kenilworth. Not Lake Forest. You know what? You're, I sit corrected. That's correct. Uh, <laughs> uh, now the question is, what's the difference? Sorry, I didn't mean to oh insult my uh, Kenilworth. Okay. <laughs> Kenilworth right. listeners, please <laughs> you're right. tune out. You're right, Frank Kenilworth. I sit corrected. All right, so there you go. Uh, if anytime Ben uh, you know, says something else incorrect, please, <laughs> Frank, weigh in. We love it. All right, and we actually have a update, a real update. Uh, the following comes from the Chicago Sun-Times and Tina Spondelez, Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox today officially announced her re-election bid in a digital ad, an email to supporters. I'll try and grab the digital ad and uh, play it before we get out of here. Uh, Fox also takes square aim at the National Rifle Association, the Fraternal Order of Police, and well, you guessed it, President Trump <laughs> in the two-minute Ad. Uh, Fox also said the personal attacks she's endured over the investigation are about stopping progress in Cook County. In the ad, Fox, Fox touts her accomplishments, including more violent crimes being prosecuted. Oh, my God, we have the ad actually here attached at the Chicago Sun-Times. Do you want to hear the ad real quick? Sure. Uh, sure. Get Why Troy not? in the studio. Get his thoughts oh, on the please ad, Please don't too. play any other additional <laughs> ads. Oh, here we go. It's about two minutes. It's different now. We're not playing the whole thing. But I grew up at Larrabee Division better known as Cabrini Green. It's where I learned to be tough, to survive, overcame poverty and sexual assault. For years, the name Cabrini Green was synonymous with racism and poverty, and the towers were symbols for inequality and injustice in Chicago. Time passed and the projects came down, but those problems haven't changed. Now new names symbolize injustice, Names like John Burge and Laquan McDonald. All right. Well, there's wow. about a minute more there. A minute more of that. Uh, you, <laughs> uh, any 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 thoughts about that, Troy, before? Uh, I know that's <laughs> called improv. I just threw that at you. I had heard uh, it. So, um, first of all, I love Kim Fox. I'll just say that. I wasn't crazy about that commercial, but I love Kim Fox. Um, I think when you're an incumbent, um, you don't necessarily rely on the backstory as much. There was a very good 
to use it when she was introducing herself to people, mm -hmm. the Cabrini Green story. But now you're the incumbent, and so you, you have to lean to your vision, uh, the things you've accomplished, progress you've made. And I don't know if you know we didn't hear that part. Uh, and I'm sure you know it's just an introductory commercial. I'm sure she'll have some stuff out. Um, then the John Burge and oh God, what's the the the, the, Quan, the guy who the officer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Van Dyke, Van Dyke right? I, I would have said I wouldn't have uh, Laquan symbolizing injustice. I don't know if I get what she was trying to say, but I would I would have used the name Van Dyke rather mm -hmm. than the name, you know, Laquan McDonald. Hmm. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, distinction in and of itself. Just think about that for a moment. Let's just think about what you're getting at when you say that. Uh, what are you getting at when you say that? The I think of the purpose. So there was a perpetrator. So he, she started with Burge, and if you're gonna start with a perpetrator, then your second one has to be the per, another perpetrator. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there, she juxtaposed John Burge <laughs> with Laquan McDonald rather than a victim, uh, Van Dyke. Yeah, a victim. That's all. Yeah. Um, those are my initial when thoughts. You, when so, you yeah, say again, uh, that's my first time here. Yeah, so. I first time hearing it too. I almost <laughs> want to hear the whole thing. Where she go? Yeah. Where is she taking? We're talking about Cabrini Green. Uh, I would a lot of younger voters probably don't even know about Cabrini Green. You know, Cabrini Green was was I think it was finally torn down. I want to say mid O's something like that. Time flies. Like it's it's been so many years. I know that uh, in the '90s it was already starting to. The talk was in the air, the plan for transformation uh, to tear down the, the big high rises. So, I mean, she's I mean, she's trying to get some bandwidth, though. I mean, in terms of who's going to show up to the polls, most of the younger voters who you're talking about aren't the ones who, you know, historically show up. Mm -hmm. the people who vote, they know what Green Green is. Yeah, what it yeah. symbolizes. I, I certainly remember as a kid, Mayor Jane Byrne. <laughs> moving into Cabrini Green like that's that was the thing the mayor has moved into Cabrini Green and so anybody in my generation knows exactly what she's talking about yeah and we're the ones who vote people older than us uh yes the older people do but yeah I, your, your point well taken anybody who does vote knows what Cabrini Green uh is you say you like Kim Fox now it's, uh, expound on that a little bit so I have to so excuse myself <laughs> in a way uh Kim Fox and my first wife are good friends. They've known each other since law school. Um, I did not know that. Um, I actually met Kim when going down to visit my wife. My wife was a third year, Kim was a first year. My wife was the president of the Black Law Student Association. And she did a lot to help first year law students. And Kim was one of the people, um, for lack of a better word, she mentored. Mm -hmm. So I've known Kim for quite a while and just love what she's become and I'm very proud of her. So, oh, and I'll uh, leave it at that. Leave it at that. All right. Well, uh, it's it's uh I just actually wrote about this as fresh in my mind. This is uh I wasn't even planning to discuss this, but since we're having this conversation, uh it's becoming harder and harder for me, Troy, uh to take serious, although I do take serious, the corruption in the city of Chicago when I see the corruption that's engulfing us on a national level, right. it's completely tolerated by the Republican Party. 
uh, and there's absolutely no consequence for Donald Trump's uh, corruption. The Republican Party is making no effort uh, in any way uh, to investigate uh, the corruption that Donald Trump has perpetrated. In fact, they're going the opposite way. They're doing the, everything they can to distract people mm-hmm. from an investigation, to uh, distract us with just these tangential these trivialities uh, and um and many of the same people that do this on a local level are trying to fire us up about Kim Fox, for instance, and Smol- what I call Smollett Gate. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about Smollett Gate never with you on the show many times. Uh, and I just find it harder and harder to take serious, even even like the more um, obnoxious evidence of corruption in Chicago, like mm-hmm. s- the state uh, representative Louis Arroyo on tape uh, bragging about bribing. You know what I'm saying? We're that, we're supposed to be outraged by that, and it is an outrage. But in comparison to what's going on on a routine and regular basis with Donald Trump, mm-hmm. uh, I just find it hard to be so outraged by what's happening locally, particularly when so many of the allies I see, like people, the the Republican critics of local Democratic corruption, are absent yeah, with I, the larger one. I have a couple of thoughts on that. First of all. Thought number one, Democrats, the right and the left have two different definitions of corruption. I'm convinced they're not talking about the same thing. The left is talking about when the left talks about corruption, we're talking about the dictionary definition. We actually know what the word means when we say we're talking about corruptions. When we say we're talking, when we say we don't want to see corruption, we are talking about wealthy influencers putting money into the political process in order to profit from government decision-making. That's what we're talking about, what corruption is. When the right talks about corruption, there's no real definition. It's just like government, like lefty government. That's just, that's just it. Anything that we can tie to potential waste or um, this, the over-representation or, or government sort of what they call government overreach. Like they don't have a real dictionary definition of corruption when they talk about it. It's just anything you do they don't like that they can pin the word on, that's (laughs) what they say. They're not talking about corruption. So that's number one. Uh, Number two, in relation to the whole Smollett thing, um, you just, one of the things you mentioned before you played that commercial is an increase in the... um, prosecution of violent crime, right? That's one of the things you mentioned in terms of Kim Fox's record. Now, if I remember correctly, part of the reason that she dismissed this case was for that very reason, that we have a limited amount of resources here. Now, we can spend a lot of the state's attorney resources prosecuting this man, Mm -hmm for this lie that he told, or we can put those resources toward prosecuting violent crime. And it was her decision to put those resources toward prosecuting. This is my understanding of the, the decision-making process, that this man, he is, he's, almost, he's already got a natural consequence. His career is over. He is never gonna get another job in Hollywood. He's has been. We can take these resources and actually put them toward prosecuting violent crime and mm-hmm. actually making a meaningful difference in 
crime in Chicago or the reduction of crime in Chicago. That is my understanding. And it seems as if the record actually matches the reasoning. If you say your reasoning was to prosecute, like I have a focus on prosecuting violent crime and the prosecution of violent crime is actually up, it seems like things match up there. Now, if she had said that and then the prosecution of violent crime had gone down, we'd have a problem here. (laughs) But it seems like that record justifies and backs up her stated decision. Now, you can still disagree with it, but at least there's a consistency there. Yeah, well, all right, listen, I don't want to relitigate Smollett Gate at this very moment and other things to talk about, but the biggest problem, here's my problem now, and it got me going, because I I, I feel that the greatest victim from the the Justice Smollett uh, story is the effort uh, to have alternatives to harsh prosecution, that uh, the way she handled it, the way her office handled it, the way they fumbled it, uh, just gave credence to all the voices on the right that want to dismiss alternative sentencing completely. And uh, so they use this as a convenient tool uh, to um, to go after the an entire movement. So I think there, it, there were serious consequences uh, to what she did. Uh, that said, like I, the more I watch many of her harshest critics, and their weak response, their non-response to matters of abuse of power mm-hmm. that are far greater. Like Donald Trump, when a witness is testifying in a congressional hearing, tweeting out negative comments about them, which is so obviously an attempt to intimidate not just that witness, but any witness. How many law enforcement officers or how many prosecutors can stand by and not speak out about that? I mean, how can you build a case? It's like, they'd be like, I mean, I just saw Godfather 2. It's on my mind. So we're, we're uh, you know, we're the, they brought in the, um, they brought in the hood to speak out against Michael Corleone. And Michael Corleone responded by bringing the hood's brother. And I don't All know right. if you ever saw this movie. Yeah, I've seen it many uh, times. But it's like, <laughs> it's just like standard. Right, there you go. Yeah, it's just like standard. When, when thugs and criminals want to intimidate a witness you know they come in the court and they sit there and they stare at the witness you know and so it's like same law enforcement types that are blasting kim fox she took a phone call from a well-connected democrat uh in this in this case are the ones who are looking the other way when donald trump intimidates a witness so it's like that's what i'm getting at troy where is the consistency if you have a principled opposition to this kind of behavior then why don't you advocate that principle when it's a Republican that you support as opposed just to a Democrat that you don't support? It's, I think you said it in the question. They don't have a principled opposition. They just have opposition, but it is not a principled opposition. I mean, this may sound like a stretch, but it reminds me of the, the whole thing with um, co- the whole Confederate statute argument where um, they say that this is about states' rights. Right? That's the principle supposed to be about states' rights. But when you look at the actual history, the same people that were yelling you know, states' rights in terms of uh, our right to own and keep human beings were against states' rights when other states wanted to exercise their rights to not return those human beings when they escaped. At that, at that point, it was about, <laughs> no, 
you don't have a state's right anymore. You have to do, we need a national law that prevents you from exercising that independence. So when it was, the only two things that are consistent there it are uh, the desire to keep and expand slavery. So when it was about states' rights for the South, we were on the side of states' rights because it kept and expanded slavery. When it was about states' rights for the North, then we were against states' rights because that kept that that will keep and expand and increase the power. So you don't have a principled op opposition in terms of states' rights. What you really want is slavery. And so I don't think in the same way that Republicans have any kinds of principled opposition against corruption, you're using this label of corruption in much the way they use the label of states' rights to give a veneer, to create this veneer of legitimacy to your opposition, to whomever you're opposing at the particular moment, whether it be Kim Fox or Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders or whether Michael Madigan or um, the, the young, the, uh, the Adam Schiff. Mm -hmm. Whomever it is, I'm going to cloak my opposition in this veneer of anti-corruption. But, of course, I don't give a damn about corruption. But because when it comes to the president and his corruption, I'm going to turn a blind eye here. You know, it's about, for them, it's about winning. That's it. It is about winning. And we'll say whatever the hell they need to say to win. That's it. Yeah. I agree with you on that one. All right, let's move on to the uh, the local level. Uh, you wrote, uh, well, you were on the show, you articulated your worldview on this, and then you followed it up with an essay about, uh, in your humble opinion, uh, the Chicago Teachers Union was not demanding enough uh, when they went on strike. Uh, it, it uh, you were, as I said, you were pretty much the only person I saw make that argument. Mm -hmm. uh, I agreed with the argument. Uh, I could defend the teachers union for having the limit because it was good Lord to get the city to do what they did was kick, force them kicking, dragging, screaming, complaining, writing editorials, etc. cetera. Uh, but you made a very compelling point that more needs to be done to eradicate the inequities that just existed forever since you were a little kid growing up in the city of Chicago. So now that we have the perspective, the strike is over, what are your general thoughts on this? So right now what we're dealing with post-strike are the thing I've been focused on, unfortunately, that's taken up way too much of my time, uh, are the makeup days. And, and the impact of the makeup days on how schools are going to be rated. That's my thing now. So because they scheduled makeup days the day before Thanksgiving, that kids once had off and going to go on vacations or do whatever, they, whatever they're going to do, and the, the Thursday and Friday of the last week of Christmas break, no one's going to show up to school. But those are going to be attendance days. And attendance is depending on how you calculate it, 20%. They'll say 10, but there's another 10% um, called an on-track rate, and the biggest part of the on-track rate is attendance. So 20% of your rating is going to be based on attendance. And I've had, Ben, I, I swear to you, I had a black male principal on the South Side and a white female principal in an affluent school on the North Side called me on the same day and said the same thing to me. If this makeup day schedule goes through, this is my last year in CPS. This is just because what's going to happen, particularly for the black male principal on the South side, and you can see this a lot with schools who, with principals who serve uh, black 
and Hispanic low-income children is that they know that that attendance, because of those five days and the horrible attendance they're going to have, their rating is going to drop and their schools are going to suffer as a result of that ratings drop. That all of the work that they've done to build up their attendance is being torn down by this decision to have makeup days uh, on what would have otherwise been vacation days. And so what I'm doing is trying to push CPS, if they're going to go with this schedule, to take those days out of consideration when it comes to the rating. Like, just don't let them count. If you want to make them attendance days, fine. Make them attendance days. But do not let them count toward rating these schools. Um, 90, I did a survey, 98%. I have never had this much agreement in a survey in my life. 400 principals responded. 98% agreed with the statement that the district should not count makeup days toward school ratings. Um, so it seems like a no-brainer, but with CPS, you never know. So that's, I know it's probably not something you were expecting, but in the world of education. No, it's and, a and direct impact, yeah. It is a, a big issue right now, and a lot of principals are following um, what the board's going to do tomorrow. And I'll certainly be at the board meeting tomorrow pushing them uh, to adopt so that the policy. So de- that decision will be made right there at that meeting? The decision to adopt the makeup That's correct, yeah. Will be made. Now, whether or not they also uh, adopt a policy of not uh, counting those yes. days toward the school rating, we'll see. But I've sent the proposal to them. Uh, they've seen it. Mm-hmm. And we'll see if they yeah. act on it. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, no, the... Um, uh, I remember when when that w- decision went down, there were two impact uh, two impacts. One uh, is what you're talking about uh, the 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 way they use attendance as a way to judge schools' performance, uh, and uh, the second one, of course, was effectively the teachers uh, were to a degree subsidizing the benefits. Uh, that they won what whatever benefits they did win for uh, the children of Chicago. I mean, uh, when you hire it's and it's so funny how way people view this, Troy, but this gets at the heart of my debate that I've had with so many of my fellow Chicagoans. When you hire more nurses, when you hire more librarians, when you hire more social workers, et cetera, and so forth, that's a direct benefit to the kid in the classroom. And yet somehow or other, the way it's interpreted, it's viewed by so much of mainstream Chicago mm-hmm. as like, what, a loss? Because <laughs> you have to pay for it. Do you follow me? It's like a loss for this. Like Mayor Lightfoot retreated and lost to the Chicago teachers. It's a very bizarre worldview that Chicagoans have you, adopted on this one. I think that's a few people making a lot of noise. I do not believe that the majority of Chicagoans make, you know, the sometimes in the Tribune, you know, they have an outsized, the the folks who run their editorial pages have um, an outsized representation of their voice. Um, You put it on, they can put something on the front of the Tribune three, four days in a row, three, four weeks in a row, and it seems like that thing those few people are saying is public opinion. And it's just not. I, I can't see a reasonable average person saying more social workers, more nurses in the most understaffed school district in Illinois is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, and by the way, 
right after I did that piece mm-hmm. showing that Chicago Public Schools was the most understaffed school district in Illinois based on state data, the state released new data to show that they're no longer. They're like one of the top staffed school districts in Illinois. Somehow CPS went to the state and got the data changed. Like, <laughs> like now the number, now, now listen to me, man, listen to me. The number they have now. Yeah. Based on the number they have, because it went from 17 kids, 17 staff, excuse me, 17 children per staff member to 12 children per staff member. In order for that to be true, CPS would have had to have hired 10,000 people last year, 10,000 new positions. We know that did not happen. And so something strange is afoot here um, because the new data no longer has CPS and it's been the most, one of or the most understaffed school district ever since I've been keeping track of this thing. And um, after I started talking about this, all of a sudden, and it started getting some notoriety, all of a sudden the state releases data saying that, nope, they were number 861 out of 861 school districts. And now they're like 100 something. Wow. That is wild. Just a stroke of some changes in data. And, and I remember the first when you were a mayoral candidate uh, and you raised this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fact checker for the Better, uh, Government, Better Government Association, Association uh, took the deep dive mm-hmm. and she ended up saying, you were right. Or yeah. I forget they have a rating system. True. True. Yeah. yeah. I got a true. You got a true, which is pretty good by their rating system. It's the best. It's the best one you can get. Uh, <laughs> tr- it's true. <laughs> it's true. And you to, can't get any better than that. <laughs> and to prove that it was true, she went, she herself went to the state. Yes. The, the, the writer researcher mm-hmm. went to the state and dug up the information. So now what you're telling me, and I've not t- taken an independent look is that the state has changed the information it's presenting to, so that people who take this deep dive will have a different conclusion. Now, to be clear, they, they changed the data based on interaction with CPS came after the state to change the data. They've told, I've talked to um, uh, Matt Lyons, uh, the head of uh, HR. As a matter of fact, when I put the data out, he came to me. Yeah, he head of HR at CPS, or yeah, head okay. of HR. They call it the talent department. Well, I'm glad they're talking HR. to you at least. That's a big improvement. What? Chicago Public Schools. <laughs> we're trying to fire Troy Laravier <laughs> for a while, uh, and now at least they're, they're at least one person is talking to you. So well, he only came to say, "Where did you get this claim?" And so I showed him the data from yeah. ISB, and then he went to IS. He and his department went to ISBE. And as a result of their, I don't know what happened behind the scenes, <laughs> but as the result of their interaction, CPS is no longer one of the most understaffed based on the data. <laughs> and I don't know how good, because you got, you, have, you know, this is the same district that changed charter school test scores. This is the same district that got caught Jimmy in, um, and, and um, inflating high school graduation rates, right? And so this is the same di- district that got caught editing a document that was released via the Freedom of Information Act uh, so that it would not say what the original document said. Mm -hmm. And so you have to, please excuse me. And I told him, I was like, I'm sure you will understand, given that that record, why I have my doubts about these so-called corrections you guys made with the state. Um, But they made them. Are these quote unquote corrections uh, uh, symbolized or represented uh, or supported by actual 
human beings in a school? Like, are your are your members, principals calling up? Oh my God, Troy, we suddenly got ten nurses. <laughs> no, to- they're not. <laughs> they are not. He did make one interesting point though about um, that made it seem like there might be some need for a correction. I can't remember the exact data, but he basically was like, okay, we have blank many teachers, blah, 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 blah. If we have this many teachers alone, uh, that seems to be more than the 17 to one ratio that they're claiming. And he was right. Mm -hmm. He was right on that. Whether or not it actually went up as high as it did, I'll never know, but I doubt it. Well, so uh, given all this, uh, do you think that uh, we're in a better position uh, than we were before the strike? Uh, in terms of meeting the needs of the poorest children in the poorest schools? Depends on how you put that, how you look at it. In some ways, in sort of this sort of absolute sense or immediate sense, yes, we did not have a guarantee or we didn't have it in writing that we would get these additional positions. Um, Another way you look at it is that, you know, the biggest bargaining chip that we had is now gone. There can be no strike for five years. There's, that's the biggest leverage we had. And did we get as much as we could have out of the leverage that we had? Um, and, you know, I have my doubts about that. Um, you know, it's the biggest sort of obvious sense of leverage. I mean, people can rise up at any point if we organize ourselves and put pressure. Uh, but in terms of ready-made leverage, mm-hmm. you know, that... The, the ability of the union to strike was the biggest thing we had at that time, and now it's gone. Just think about how what uh, embedded in what you said a very depressing theme. To get the powers that be in the city of Chicago to do the right thing and invest our resources in the poorest of poor schools, there there is a strike, right? And that is pretty much it. Absent. A mass revolt, right? Uh, which I haven't seen happen in this town since about 1983. Mm-hmm. So it just is kind of a depressing thing that you just said. It, it, they were forced, as I always say, kicking and screaming every step of the way, complaining. Uh, when the strike right. was over, their advocates uh, in the media ripped the teachers for daring to go on strike, and then uh, raised the issue of sick days to besmirch all teachers everywhere as a bunch of what ne'er do wells. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and now, but the reality is you're saying is true. Now everybody's back to business as usual. And next year start cutting TIF deals, taking money away from the schools, closing schools, et cetera. Cause the hammer is gone. Exactly. For five years it's gone. But I also want to say that that latter part and, because I don't want to down the teachers, because I know I seem like I come down hard on the teachers' union. It, yeah, in some ways I do because they had that power, and so you have to put as much pressure as possible on them while they have it. But, I mean, they shouldn't have had to fight that fight alone. They should not have. They should. So I can't be so angry at them or disappointed in them. I have to be disappointed with me for not organizing um, a cadre of people to stand with them. Uh, and I think we all, I think I think the best thing for us all to do is to sort of think about how in the next go around, even before the next go around, how we can ensure that it is not just the teachers 
pushing for these things, the things that our school district needs. Um, I, that's certainly what I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, principals are very vulnerable, more so than you say teachers got a five-year contract. What's the, the principal contract is three years. Am I correct on that? Well, one, principals do not have a collectively bargained contract. They get, correct. Each one gets an individual contract that the district itself writes, mm-hmm. um, and it is four years. And not all principals get one. There's, there are at least 100, I believe, in so-called interim principals. They've been in some, there's principals who've been interim from, for eight years, Ben, mm. wow. so that they will not give them a contract. Yeah. Um, wow. And we actually have a bill sitting in front of a, a legislator right now that would extend collective bargaining rights to principals in Illinois. Mm-hmm. And um, we're not looking to push it forward right now uh, until we'll try and push it in a spring session. Um, but it, we believe that it is necessary. I mean, I just got four position files from a principal. And the positions files describe the positions, the annual salary, the weekly salary, and the hourly rate. Now, listen to the hourly rates on these four position files. One of the files is for a principal, one is for an assistant principal, two are for teachers. So here are the hourly rates, $75, and $51. Which of those hourly rates do you think belong to the two teachers and which do you think belong to the principal and the assistant principal? 75, 74, 63, and 51. Well, now when you ask the question, now this is like one of those uh, betting games, I would say the higher one would be the principal and the assistant principal. But I think when you ask that question, that leads me to believe that it's uh, right. counter. It is counter. Yeah. 75 is the teacher, 74 is the teacher, 63, per hour is the principal and 51 mm-hmm. is the principal because principals work year round. Mm, I see. Right. And so they actually get paid at significantly less than the people they're supposed to be supervising. And part of that is a result of the fact that they don't have collective bargaining power mm. and the district just tramples on them and disrespects them left and right. Uh, and they have to organize themselves. And it is my hope that in trying to organize them around that issue, um, that we build the advocacy muscle of principles and in organizing around that issues, we build the relationships that will enable us to help uh, parents and the teachers organize around other issues that we also care about, like staffing, for example. Well, you're getting into income issues and the teachers affected their strike. The main uh, sticking points was not uh, the financial end. It was not how much they get paid, the bread and butter issues. It was uh, the larger classroom uh, issues of how many uh, employees and workers there are in a school. That's, a, that's effectively what the strike was uh, came down to. Uh, it's a very interesting dynamic when you talk about the amount of money a public educator makes. Right. Because for years, I, I've really can't get my head around this one, Troy. Um, it was this, it was almost viewed as that teachers were violating a sacred mission if they were to publicly demand a greater wage. Everywhere else in this country, your worth as an, a worker 
your worth on a marketplace is largely determined by the amount of money you make. Mm-hmm. It's a case of basketball, movies, CEOs, the head, head of Uber. Uh, you know, we, we talked about Uber. He wants to make sure he's getting a lot of money as benefits his position as the head of Uber. But when it comes to public, uh, well, comes to teachers mm-hmm. or principal, oh, no, no, hey, 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 that's the kids come first. The kids come first. Stop it. Now you're making too much money. What was that language you used? Violating a sacred principle. Principle. Yeah. No pun intended. Um, I think that you are violating a sacred principle as a city or as a school district when you do not offer a salary competitive enough to get the best people in here for the children that you're supposed to be educating. When a principal in Chicago can look around and find 52 school districts that pay a higher rate than the district here within a 15 to 45 minute driving distance, that's a problem. You have violated an obligation to ensure that you can attract good people in to lead the schools that serve your young people. Um, and you have to value the work. Like if you like, how else do you express the value you attribute in the worth of the work than what you pay people to do the work? Um, and, and when you have principles you know, that principal sent me those documents for a reason. He's pissed. He hears all of this conversation about raises for teachers and we value our, and value <laughs> me. <laughs> value, show that you show value me the money. my work. <laughs> yeah. Show that you value yeah. my work. And at the same time, we see, when I, when I got the job at Blaine, what is it, seven years ago now? There were over a hundred people who applied for that job. They had to narrow, I think they told me they narrowed it down to 36. Mm-hmm. And then they started going through and calling people from these 36 and then they narrowed it down to I think eight. And then they narrowed it down to me and one woman. When the Blaine principalship was just opened up, they couldn't get 10 people. They were calling me, asking me if I knew candidates. Right, And so that's what happens when you're in a district where principals feel disrespected, where they're not compensated at a level that's competitive, that's, com- that's competitive with, not just with other districts, but with teachers. <laughs> right? That's what happens. You can't get teachers to leave teaching positions to become assistant principals if my pay rate's gonna go down to 51 bucks an hour and now it's at 60 or 70. Mm. Like you can't get the talent in for the young people you're supposed to be serving. That's a basic economic principle. And for the CPS or anyone to forget the basic laws of economics when it comes to our young people, you know, it's like those Republicans and their corruption talking point. That you believe in that only when you're talking about us. You know, I have this thing where I say CPS wants to pay everybody it owes. The banks. Aramark, everybody wants to pay everybody it owes except the people who actually earned the money that they're owed. The people who actually worked for what they're owed. Those are the ones they don't want to pay. And what, the heck, what did the bank do for you? What, what, how much work did they do 
for the hundreds of millions of dollars that you gleefully send them every single year, that you do not protest at all. They don't have to go on strike for them to get what they're due from what they're owed from you. There is no acrimony. You pay. But when it comes to the people who actually do the work, that's when we get the acrimony. That's when we get the editorials from the Sun Times. You know, people don't like the, 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 the ruling class of this city don't want to pay the people who work. They want to pay the people who own. We will take a break on that profound point. We come back, we'll uh, switch topics to national news, national issues, which I'm sure the themes are very similar to the one that Troy just raised on the local level. We'll be right back. The Ben Jarofsky Show is supported by Northwestern University's part-time master's program in literature and liberal studies. Students learn from dynamic and diverse faculty as they build advanced skills for critical analysis, writing, and research. Evening classes are held on Northwestern's Evanston and Chicago campuses. The spring quarter application deadline is January 15th. Learn more at sps.northwestern.edu slash masters. It's Chicagoland's Adult Entertainment Playground. It's the world-famous Admiral Theater, 3940 West Lawrence Avenue. The Admiral is homegrown from Chicago, and it's the most conveniently located club in all of the city. 15 minutes from the O'Hare Airport in downtown Chicago Loop. Voted Chicago's best strip club, the Admiral has showgirls galore and a variety of adult entertainment shows. The world-famous Admiral Theater, open every day from 7 p.m. to 6 a.m., 3940 West Lawrence Avenue. For events, showtime, and other information, visit AdmiralX.com. Must be 18 years of age or older to enter. Well, we got to get down to business. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show. Live from the Chicago Sun-Times. We are doing our business. Troy LaRavier is in the studio, uh, president of the Chicago Principals Association. That was a very deep conversation we just emerged from. I, t- I wrote down his line uh, in the city of Chicago, the power elite. They don't want to pay people who work. They want to pay people who own. Uh, That's correct. That is, Robert Mueller agrees with that one. Uh, before we come back to Troy, I'm going to uh, switch gears and to ask some national news. Before we do that, D, you got an update for me? Absolutely. We do have an update here uh, before we roll out of here for the day. Ben, 10 trivia points. Uh-oh. <laughs> Which former Ben Jarofsky show guest, reoccurring show guest, and former Jeopardy contestant just announced that he is running for 9th District County Board? Uh, Neil Muhammad? There's only one. Yes, Neil Muhammad. I did not. He's running for office again? Yeah, yeah. That's why it's a breaking update. Wow. Yes, it's Neil Muhammad. He ran for Congress two years ago, the 16th Congressional District, but now he's looking for a seat on the county board. Neil Muhammad, 38 years old, announced Monday that he was running to succeed Paul Stoddard, the Democrat out of DeKalb, and representing the 9th District on the board. Uh, we have a quote from Muhammad here. He says, quote, I'm just hopeful to have the opportunity to take what I've learned in the private sector, particularly regarding rural medical care and public health, and make a positive contribution to our community. So congratulations. Good luck to our good friend, Neil Muhammad. You know, I have mixed feelings about this. And uh, Troy, I don't think you ever met Neil Muhammad. Uh, truly, I, and I, he's truly one of the smartest people that's ever walked through that door uh, and he's a Jeopardy contestant, uh, which not, doesn't necessarily mean, you know, he's smart, but he shows he has a lot of stuff upstairs. Did he win? 
No, he didn't. He won one round and lost the other, and then I nailed him on it. Remember, I asked him a trivia question. He yeah, couldn't answer yeah, it. I can't yeah, remember. Yeah. Some obscure piece of trivia that's floating. They were making fun of me earlier today because I like know I have this incredible ability, Troy, to remember where people went to high school. Um, for instance, a Troy LaRavier is a proud uh, graduate of... To Sabo High School, if I'm a correct, or is it Dunbar Vocational? Dunbar. Dunbar. Vo- I knew it was a D in the D-U, South Side. D-U. You got the D-U. <laughs> well, that would have been embarrassing if you got it wrong, huh? But come yeah. on, man. You got to give me credit for that. I, yeah, Troy told me good, that. Huh? It's really weird. Uh, but Neil Muhammad, is, uh, I, he would come in, and we would speak for an hour on this or that subject, and he was so well-versed. Uh, and, you know, he just, like, would take these he, he, like on healthcare, the man knows so much about healthcare and he would talk about the history of healthcare. I'm like, what a great, so now, you know, now that he, but he wants to be a public official. He wants to be an elected official. So I, you know, I got to grant him that, but I'm like, oh no, I want you to be at the beck and call of the Ben Jarofsky show. <laughs> so I got mixed feeling. Good, God bless you, Neil. Well, maybe Good we can luck get to one you. more interview. Out one more interview. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> By the way, you can download uh, our interviews with Neil oh, Muhammad yeah. if you're unaware of them. ChicagoSunTimes.com, ChicagoReader.com, wherever else you download your favorite podcasts. A very, very smart man. You'll learn something if you listen to no, that. No, you know, everybody knows I got my favorites. Uh, you know, Troy, obviously, uh, Stacey Davis-Gates, you know, Neil Muhammad, the people that come back recurring because they got something interesting to say. Maya, they're not afraid to say it. You know what I mean? So, uh, Neil, God bless you. Best of luck to you. Neil Muhammad. Uh, for, yeah, he's from DeKalb. Schlepp been all the way from DeKalb, too, so I appreciate that. Uh, that's no joke. All right. Uh, now, I sent you a, a homework assignment, which obviously you were too busy to do, so I'll help you with the homework assignment. I was just utterly obsessed with this story, uh, Troy, that broke over the weekend, and I haven't had an opportunity to talk about it. I'm probably going to write about it. Okay. I uh, wrote about it briefly, but okay, follow me on this. So, Mayor Michael Bloomberg, former Mayor Michael Bloomberg, who for about 12 years was the mayor of New York City, Mm -hmm. and as the mayor of New York City, was very proud of a policing strategy uh, that he championed called Stop and Frisk, in which police officers were essentially encouraged to literally do that, stop and frisk. And the idea was that if you, on a routine basis, just... uh, Stop and frisk, arrest, what have you. People that you think are up to no good, crime will fall. Uh, that was the attitude prevalent in New York City back in the early part of this century. And uh, he championed it. And he was, uh, there was a counterblast from uh, black activists, black, just ordinary black people in the city of New York. Because guess what? Troy LaRavier, most of the people that were swept up by stop and frisk were black people. And the ACLU, God bless the ACLU, filed some lawsuits and forced the city of New York when uh, Bloomberg left and de Blasio took over to retreat from stop and frisk. Crime was falling already during stop and frisk, Troy. It continued to fall even when they got rid of stop and frisk. So the first view is maybe there's not a correlation, a direct correlation between crime and stop and frisk. If crime is continuing to fall, maybe there's other factors at play here. Or maybe if you move away from stop and frisk, that'd be a more effective means of policing against crime, whatever. That's what's going on. Bloomberg was defiant in his support of stop and frisk in the face of uh, criticism. Up until, I think, a couple months ago, he was still defending it. Then, lo and behold, he decided he wanted to run for president of the United States as a Democrat. 
Well, if you're going to run for president of the United States as a Democrat, you absolutely positively must, with a capital M underline, must get black votes. So what happened on Sunday? He uh, stopped off at a black church mm-hmm. in Brooklyn. It, it, the, the minister, the preacher of the church is friendly with him, has been friendly with him for years, gave him access to the congregation, and he apologized for stop and frisk. He said, I was wrong for stop and frisk. It was like the light went on. Okay, maybe the light was turned on by suddenly looking at polls that show, I don't know. But there's a part of me, you know, Troy, I battle with this that's very skeptical about what people do and why they do it. I mean, you know, I'm always struggling with this. Profound moment, an apology from one of the most powerful men in America. He's a billionaire. Mm three-time mayor of New York City, had a huge hand in shaping all kinds of policies. He could continue to do that if he chose. He has apologized for stop and frisk. Your thoughts? So, let me, as someone who has been um, targeted multiple times in my life by police action, it it is some... seriously demeaning dehumanizing shit for that to happen to you it is you you feel power it 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 is it's just fucking demeaning right and imagine an elected official powerful elected official deciding that he's going to put hundreds thousands or hundreds of thousands of people through that through that demeaning disempowering process I I don't care if your apology is sincere or not because we have to make a decision here and the decision isn't is your apology genuine is this a a show the decision is do you get to be president do you get my vote for president my vote is not going to hinge on whether you're sincere about your apology. My vote is going to hinge on the fact that you were in an office of great power and you abused the hell out of that power by using it to subject thousands of people every single day to that kind of abuse. You don't get to run for president. I'm glad you're sorry, but you don't get to be president after having done that. You need to chalk it up I screwed up. I had my chance. I screwed it up. You know, should black, no one should vote for this man. If you don't believe that human beings should be subjugated, devalued, and humiliated like that, then you don't vote for this man. You don't give him a chance. Thanks for your apology. Now go home and on, or go out to sail on one of your seven yachts, <laughs> but get the hell away from the presidency of the United States. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. You know, I, I had, did they ever tell you about this one traffic stop I had? Um, I've had plenty, but I had this one that was so telling. I'm an assistant principal at Johnson School of Excellence. And I get off work, I have my suit on, my tie, and I'm driving home. I, Johnson is west side, I lived on the south side. So I'm going fast admittedly I may have ran an orange light or two 
Which road, what road are you traveling on? I'm going down California. Okay. Going south on California. Going south on California. Mm -hmm. I'm around the teens, 20s, streets. Mm -hmm. And this car, this um, looks like a sport utility vehicle, blue, pulls up, goes into oncoming traffic to pass me up. Um, this is me. This is him. He goes into oncoming traffic to pass me up, and it stops his car in front of me. To stop me, he gets out of his car. He walks over to my car. He flashes his badge as he's walking toward me. And I roll my window down. This dude reaches into my uh, car to pull out my car keys, snatches them out of the car, snatches my keys out of the car, then does one of these numbers with his coat. He's in civilian clothes, but he's a cop. And he flashes, he's got his gun right there. And I look at him, I go, I'll never forget, I'm like, a gun? I say this out loud, a gun? For a traffic stop? A gun? I'm just looking at him, dead like I'm looking at you. A gun? And he kind of catches himself. Then he starts to just snap and berate me in front of, you know, just out in public, just berates me. But just, Rodden, you know, he's just snapping. And me, you know, California is one lane both ways around there. So there's these cars behind me, and I'm backing up, we're backing up traffic. So I said, excuse me, officer, as politely as I possibly can. Um, is it all right with you if you gave me my keys back so I can pull up and get out of these folks' way so that they can pass us by? I won't go anywhere. just want to get out of these folks' way. And he stops like he's suspended. And he goes, I'm sorry. You're not who I thought you were. I'm sorry. You're not who I thought you were. I see you dressed in a suit. You're very conscientious about the people behind you. You're not who I thought you were. And the question becomes, who did he think I was? Right? He thought I was the person he'd been trained his entire life to believe I am. He thought I was who everyone in America <laughs> is conditioned to believe I am, including us. Right? There is a narrative, a stereotype, imagery of people who look like me that, you know, we call this, you know, uh, implicit bias. Right? The police didn't teach him that. Life in America taught him to expect a certain thing from people who look like me. Now, you multi, and the, 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 the thing about it is, I believe this was a good man. He actually believed that I was who he thought I was, <laughs> that I deserved. You know, and it wasn't, it wasn't until he was confronted by my extraordinary calm, <laughs> believe it or not, and my dress, and I got an opportunity to display the fact that I gave a damn about, like, the thing that he thought I was just didn't jive with the reality of who I was. Now, maybe, I, maybe not, many brothers don't get the, many brothers don't get the chance to do that. Sometimes when, he, when you reach for that gun, there's an action there based on who they think we are, you know, 
The stop and frisk happens based on who they think we are. And so, again, for you as an elected official, Mr. Bloomberg or Mr. whoever the hell you are who believes in that kind of policy, to subject so many of us. Man, I just had to sit there and take that, man. It was one of the most demeaning, dehumanizing things I've ever experienced in my life. How did it culminate? He gave you the keys. He apologized. He gave me my keys. And he let me drive off. That was it. That was it. You know, for me, it ended well. It didn't begin very well. (laughs) But it should have never happened. Period. Right? But because of who he thought I was. Yeah. And so many New York City police officers, Chicago police officers, think that people who look like me are a certain way, which is why you see those numbers the way they are in terms of all the black people who they stop and frisk and fucking humiliate and dehumanize. Like, you you don't get to be an elected official. Well, it would be more believable if uh, instead of having this uh, confession on the eve of a presidential election, uh, he had had would said, you know what? I'm going to give X amount of money to the ACLU or something like that, you know, mm-hmm. to as a sign that I realize I went too far in uh, infringing on people's constitutional rights. And I believe in constitutional rights. Uh, you know, uh, Bloomberg was one of the big funders you probably know this, but I'm just going to say this anyway for our listeners who might not know this. The gun stuff? Uh, well, gun, uh, yes, gun, but also the fight against uh, uh, sugary sugary drinks. That's yeah. one of his obsessions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as such, he you know was a leader of the movement that caused Tony Prequico so many problems when she tried to increase the sh- uh, soda pop tax, the sugar tax. We talked about that many times when you were on the old show. And... Uh, you know, so he's not afraid to put his some of his money behind causes that he really believes in. The, mm-hmm. uh, the soda pop thing is one obvious case. Guns is another obvious case. So it'd be, I'd be more impressed if he wasn't running for president and if he said, you know what, I've thought about this and I've come to the conclusion I was wrong. Uh, like that slaver in that song, Amazing Grace, right. you know, and uh, uh, I've now, I'm going to turn my life around on this particular issue and crusade as strongly against it as I do about for getting the people to stop drinking soda pop because it's bad for their health or getting people just having access to guns because it's bad for their health. Yeah, I agree with all, everything you just said was a great way to atone for his mistakes. Uh, I agree with all of them, but you still don't get to run for office and have me support you. All right. Uh, that's fair enough. And uh, so the question I had for you, can you think of any other apologies that you would like to hear uh, prominent politicians make for the policies of the 21st century? Um, plenty. But the one I'm thinking about right now is I would like to hear Democrats apologize for the horrible messaging that they that they have around this impeachment. Talk about that. Um I mean, you look at, one, if I hear the word quid pro quo, (laughs) like nobody get like, (laughs) come on, like, like, come on. Like you're trying to win hearts and minds here. You're trying to get people to understand just how derelict and corrupt uh, and how treacherous this act is. And you, you quid pro quo. Come on, man. 
Second, um, <laughs> in relationship to defining what it is the man did, he didn't want an investigation of Joe Biden. He wanted an announcement of an investigation of Joe. That's what you have to emphasize because in, he, he, he preconditioned military aid on a public announcement of an investigation. You have to see the difference here because the announcement itself undermines an actual investigation. You, when, since when have you heard the <laughs> FBI announced that it's going to invest? Like once they've announced it, they've, yeah. they've been investigating for a year. They've conducted the raid. And that's when the public finds out the office, when the, when the raid goes down. Valid point. Right. <laughs> He didn't I want an investigation. He wanted an announcement of one. Yeah. And in wanting an announcement one, you doom any real one that you possibly could have wanted. Yeah. But you did. Third. <laughs> That's a good point. Third. And, and, and then no one's saying yeah. it. Third. And I think most importantly, yeah. that aid. When we give folks aid, it's typically in our national security interest. It is in our national security interest. Uh, that's the argument, at least. I don't believe it. But since that's the talking point, let's use it. You know, when they're helping out some military group to fight terrorism in whatever the heck country they're in, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, right? that's a, typically the argument is that we don't want those folks to reach our shore, so we're attacking it over there. Right? This is in the security interest of the citizens of the United States of America. And so you're holding out. You're not just holding out military aid. You're jeopardizing the security of the American people so that you can get an announcement of an investigation. Right? They have to, Democrats have to learn to frame this so that it will look like what it is. Like the way it's framed now, it's almost academic. And mm -hmm. dude, this dude was a traitor. This dude put you in jeopardy. This dude jeopardized your life and your safety so that he can get an announcement. You know, and I can play with the we still have to play with the words a little bit, but we could message this so much more effectively so that people can see the level of criminality. And that's another word I haven't used. This man's a criminal, um, you know, but, you know, all the Democrats can say is investigation and quid pro quo. And like, nobody gives a crap about, it. I mean, nobody except people like you and me, Yeah. but we need, we need the general public and you don't get the general public with that kind of language. You have to really get in and cut and they're not doing it. And it's, it's very disappointing. It's frustrating. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's frustrating. And I'll com it's compounded by the fact that the entire Republican Party is complicit in it. And, you know, it's, it's like I always talk about the different sports and do a sports metaphor. The difference between going into a gym and just shooting baskets by yourself and then playing a game where there's someone covering you. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to do it when you're just shooting by yourself. And another thing when there's a guy pushing you, shoving you, waving his hands. The Democrats are conducting a quote unquote investigation while the other side is playing defense. 
if you will. They're rubbing, throwing their hands in the air. They're yelling at you when you shoot the free throw. Mm -hmm. They're pushing you. They're following you. And it gets, we, we're, I guess we're, we're ending where we began. Like a, the principle that wrongdoing should be investigated is out the window. And the, the Republicans have very much become Johnny Cochran. They're employing all they they should thank johnny cochran they're learning from johnny cochran they're employing all the techniques that johnny cochran used to get oj off and they're doing it on behalf of donald trump they're mm -hmm. vilifying the enemy they're trivializing the arguments they're looking to distract the jury any which way they can they're doing absolutely everything they can to reposition the focus away from the allegations of the crime Mm -hmm. And if the, like, that's the flip side of my point. If your message was sharper, you would be able to pivot so much more easily when they come with all of this distracting BS. Pivot towards this criminal. Pivot toward the criminal act. Pivot toward a very precisely and narrowly defined set of actions that you have characterized as best as you possibly mm -hmm. can that you just always go back to. All right, now before I let you out the door, uh, tomorrow is uh, debate, Deb Democratic National Debate. That's uh, correct. I think there will be 10 candidates uh, on stage. Uh, good Lord. It's it's amazing, uh, Troy. Every time you come on the show, I keep thinking there's going to be a reduction in the number of Democrats mm. running for president, but it kind of staying the same. Is Bloomberg going to be on? No, he will not be on. He's not qualified for this debate. Bloomberg, I don't think, is officially a, a presidential candidate. He's allowing his... He, uh, filed to run in Alabama, I want to say. <laughs> like, he's going to get a lot of votes in Alabama. Right. Anyway, uh, and I guess he's sort of like seeing how the trial balloon is, you know, what the reaction is, et cetera. So he will not be one of the 10. Okay. Uh, so anything in particular you would like to hear Democrats articulate tomorrow to try to win over the populace? I mean, outside of the message you know, I just mentioned, um, there is a Democrat in the race who pretty much articulates everything I want to see articulated, and that candidate is Bernie Sanders. Um, that we live in a country whose economy is rigged by the wealthiest among us, that these people make more money, have more money than they can spend in their entire lifetime, lifetimes, and are trying to get rig the economy even more so that at the expense of people who don't have enough to last until the end of the month. And then they take that money and corrupt our political system. And I'd like to see a lot more calling out of those who are on that Democratic stage who have been corrupted. And very specific examples. Bernie kind of alluded to it when he was running against Hillary with the Goldman Sachs, but he didn't want to pull the, you know, he, he, he pulled his punches. You know, I like to see folks who take the money called out mm -hmm. uh, because that is the essence of what is so wrong with our political system. And if you can't call out the people from, quote unquote, your party who are engaging in that, What are you up there for? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no, there's nothing. I don't think there's anything more important than that. Mm -hmm. Talking about because you can talk about health care, but the thing that's going to stop you from implementing is that that mm -hmm. corruption. You can talk about the need for um, 
reduced emissions. But the thing that's going to prevent you from passing actual policy that reduces emissions are members of your own party who are taking money from the polluters. So the issues are great, but let's start talking about the electoral system. Let's start talking about the people inside of our government who are part of the corruption that we need to get out uh, in order to implement all these wonderful ideas you have about free college tuition and whether it's him or even Elizabeth Warren. I like Elizabeth. Uh, I still like Bernie Moore by a mile. Uh, but whoever is out there saying it, call some folks out. Make it real. All right. Very good. By the way, I should say that tomorrow we're going to be talking uh, about the debates. Uh, no, I think Thursday. I'm all, uh, I got my days mixed up. But uh, Latisa Wallace and uh, Samina Mustafa will be coming in. So we'll be doing some uh, post-debate discussion uh, with people, uh, good Democrats. Latisa, uh, what's she doing these days? Uh, other than being a frequent guest on the Ben Jarofsky show. Yeah. Speaking of some of my favorites, she's got a job, in, but I can't remember the exact title, but I know she's working uh, in her hometown of Rockford and she's uh, a very good friend of the show to drive all the way in. And I appreciate her coming on. She'll be here on Thursday. All right. Cool. Uh, Troy LaRavier, thank you very much. Uh, Maya Dukmasovath, I want to thank her as well. And of course, the man, the myth, the legend behind the boards, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois, back home. They call him the doctor. Give yourself a raise. Take it well, out. Well, not white lightning oh i forgot <laughs> yeah they also call him white lightning I gotta remind you of your bits oh yeah thank you gary owen i owe it all to you uh give yourself a raise take it out of cat petty cash see you tomorrow everybody and remember you can download previous ben Jarofsky shows and benny j bonus interviews at both chicago sun times and chicago reader websites chicago.suntimes.com chicagoreader.com and wherever else you download your favorite podcasts downloaders we live stream this program tuesdays through fridays one until 3 p.m central time at both chicago sun times and chicago reader websites and the chicago sun times youtube channel find us on facebook and twitter at benny j show b-e-n-n-y the letter j show give us a like follow share review tell us we suck whatever you want to do it doesn't matter and uh, at benny j show 